3: I'm all right, Tom. How are you? you hey, lucky,
4: Dean. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good <laughs> <great> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner
5: Program. Good
6: morning, Tom. How you doing?
5: Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: The
7: Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
8: Do right stay You might just say the or two, or three, or four, or maybe five. Let's
1: say the are
8: we crazy, baby? this iron- in time
4: everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, guest this hour writes uh, under the name Ren Coy, and he has a book uh, called All is One that offers a conclusive definition of consciousness that might satisfy both the scientifically oriented and spiritually oriented readers and uh we're going to talk about that with Ren Coy who joins me by phone from the UK. Good morning Ren and welcome to the show. Hi Tom, nice to speak to you today. And uh, you know I was I was a little confused and I asked uh, before we went on the air um because you were um an a DJ and a music producer under the name uh John Loxley or uh, as you were known locks, and then yes, you was. you actually this uh Ren Koi is not a uh nom de plume as they say, but you actually had your name changed to that um what led up to deciding to to change your name
2: so um in two thousand and nine, I hit rock bottom um in terms of alcohol misuse and, and drugs. And after um, going into recovery um, for alcoholism, I um, started to kind of learn about spirituality and religion. And um, it was something that became, um, you know, a major kind of passion in my life. And by 2015, I started to write and uh, wrote my first book, Addiction Prevention. And, And when I wrote that book, I felt as though I wanted to write it under a pseudonym because I wanted to remain anonymous. So the name Ren Koi came about um, just kind of by chance, really. I have actually got a lot of tattoos all over my body and I have Ren tattooed on me and I have um, a Koi uh, carp uh, tattooed on my arm as well. So Ren means in Japanese means love um, and it also means lotus. Um, in Swedish, it means clean. And the uh, the koi carp is the symbol of courage. So I just kind of randomly put those two words together and that became the, the, the pseudonym for, for writing.
4: When you decided to set drugs and alcohol aside, did you just completely walk away from music and did you feel like you had to walk away from music?
2: Yes, I did initially. Um, so... When I, uh, in 2009, when I did hit rock bottom, the the music career had kind of already petered out, really. I mean, I was never a fully professional DJ. I was kind of what you would class as a semi professional DJ getting paid for gigs, but it wasn't my full time um, occupation. I also worked in a record store as well and sold um, records, and I had my own record label. Um, And when, you know, when the kind of, uh, when I kind of got to that place where enough, enough was enough, I knew that I had to walk away from the music scene, so I did. But then I actually went back to it in 2011, I believe. 2011, 2012, and and ironically, I achieved more in over the next kind of two or three years um, as a sober DJ than I ever did when I was uh, drinking and using drugs. So I kind of reached um, the point where I always dreamed of reaching, which was kind of like at the pinnacle of that kind of scene of music that I was, um, involved in. And, um, and then I had another realization, which was, it wasn't really making me happy anymore. And that was when I kind of gave it up completely and, uh, and, and started writing and, um, and taking, going, you know, walking more down the spiritual path, really.
4: How did you get involved with drugs and alcohol to begin with? Was it, was it a family thing or was it the lifestyle uh, being around music and, and uh, musicians and, and that sort of thing?
2: It was both, really. I, I grew up um, in a place in, UK, in the U.K. called Manchester with an alcoholic father. So my my dad, um, you know, when I came into the world, my dad was a fully-blown alcoholic, um, and he drank until I was um, 11, and then he gave up drinking. He um, went to Alcoholics Anonymous Got sober, um, and is still in recovery today. He's uh, 34 years sober, I believe. Um, so you know, I kind of life started out that way, and it, I always swore that I would never drink. And and to be fair, I, I kind of uh, I kept away from it for for quite a while until um, I was I was about sixteen, seventeen, and you I tried You know, Ren, that's yep. a that's a
4: tremendous story because. You know, so many times we hear that, um, you know, someone's parents or or a father was an alcoholic and drank himself to death. And what a tremendous example he set for you at age 11 to say, you know what, this is not you know this is not the way I want to be and and going through what it takes to now be what 34 years sober that's that's a tremendous accomplishment and a tremendous example so you were saying that you didn't start drinking right away you kind of resisted it because of of that example but the lifestyle and the people that you hung out with probably took over
2: yeah i mean i actually tried alcohol for the first time not long after my dad stopped drinking so i think i was about 12 or 13 when i had my first drink and the effect that it produced inside me was quite scary i understood the power of it right from the very beginning so i chose not to drink because obviously i didn't want to end up like my dad um but then uh, later about 17 18 i was um I was at an awards ceremony for uh, the soccer team that I played for, and I had I'd done I'd done really well that season. I, I'd earned um, a couple of trophies, and I'd broken my leg just before the end of the season. And I was sat in this awards ceremony with a cast on my leg, and somebody came over to me and and bought me a pint of uh, beer and sat it down in front of me and said, "There you go, you know, enjoy that." And I said, "No, I don't drink." and Um, they said, you can have one. And uh, and the irony of that one was that one kind of took me to the races and uh, I didn't (laughs) stop drinking for another 10 years. Um, And that was the beginning of uh, of my drinking career. And to be perfectly honest with you, Tom, if I hadn't found drugs during the first few years of my drinking career, I believe that I would have ended up either in prison or in a mental institute or dead, really, because um alcohol right from the very beginning for me um was i was a blackout drinker um so it didn't take much for me to get drunk and when i did blackout i would do all sorts of crazy things and you know drink driving and getting into fights and it was just a a crazy crazy lifestyle and then when i moved from manchester to leeds to go to university i did a fine art degree um over at leeds um i got into the rave scene and that was when i started djing and taking lots of drugs like ecstasy and cocaine and ketamine and basically anything I could get my hands on really and um, that was my life for, for at least a good four or five years. It was just drinking, taking drugs, DJing, partying. And um, and getting into lots of student debt as well.
4: <laughs> there's, you know, there's an an interesting underlying uh, thought there that that somehow taking the drugs fine tuned your alcoholism.
2: Yeah, well, for me, I look back on it now and I can see that if I if I hadn't have used the drug the drugs, then the alcohol would have taken me a lot quicker. Because when you use certain substances with alcohol it means that you can continue drinking it means that you can carry on whereas normally you just you know you'd black out and you'd go into oblivion so that worked for me for quite some time but as you can imagine if you if you use an ecstasy you know two or three times a week and cocaine on top of that so at some point you're going to kind of crash and it was about three just just after my university degree had finished i found myself in a really dark hole i was i was depressed um my the, the friends around me kind of did an intervention and said look you know you really need to stop taking the drugs they didn't realize that the alcohol was such a massive problem at that stage so i stopped slowly but surely stopped taking the drugs and as the drugs kind of abated the alcohol went off the cliff and by 2000 kind of 7 2008 i was in a really really bad way and um, 2009 was the, the last year of my drinking where it just things were getting going from bad to worse the last thing i remember one of the one of the worst nights of my life before i stopped drinking was i went out with a guy from work who was a self-proclaimed alcoholic and we had a few drinks and uh the, the, the next thing i remember i woke up on the on the on the sidewalk as you call it over there um it was six o'clock in the morning and i just couldn't hardly remember anything i remember being in some sort of a shady club like a strip joint kind of thing um i, I crawled home somehow managed to get home i was supposed to be in work that morning obviously never didn't ring uh, didn't even ring in sick just didn't turn up to work had people ringing me all day trying to get hold of me and um a few weeks later i got a credit card bill through and it was from this club that i'd been in and 500 pounds had been taken in one um in one payment um i had nothing to show for that money and at that point i realized that i had no control over what i was doing anymore so that was kind of the catalyst to to make the decision to change
4: so that was what you refer to as rock bottom
2: yeah definitely well the very the very the absolute rock bottom was was my uh the morning after my last drink which um As a result of all these kind of happening, all these things happening to me and, and, um, you know, it was clear that my partner at the time could see that I was spiraling out of control. We made the decision to, to emigrate, to move to Australia because, you know, my partner said to me, if you just get away from Leeds and all your friends, then you'll be okay. And my dad was in recovery, obviously, by this point. And my dad had said to me, just remember, son, you know, you take yourself with you wherever you go. And um, I didn't really understand what he meant by that, and um, you know I thought that getting away from from the UK would would be the answer. Anyway, the night before we left for um, for, for Australia, I drank myself into oblivion, and um, I woke up the next morning, and I just I just knew that the game was over. I, I just had enough, and um, I went to freshen up in the bathroom, and I overheard my partner telling her sister that she was going to leave me if I didn't stop drinking and um, that was that was rock bottom that was the actual point at which i surrendered because i walked from the bathroom she, she didn't even know that i'd heard what she'd said and i walked from the bathroom into back to the bedroom and i got down on my knees and i just i just started praying and i just said please god just help me i just can't do this anymore and um when i stood up from that prayer just something inside me had shifted i mean i'm, I'm not a religious person even today you know and that's much about what the book all is one um, deals with, you know, it's, um, it's kind of this, this conversation around, you know, a, a rational scientific perspective, and, uh, you know, and spirituality and mysticism, and, I, and I'm very much somewhere in between, and I, I'm not religious, but I am, I consider myself a spiritual and rational person, but I, I said this prayer, and I stood up from it, and um, the, Tom, the, the truth of the matter is I've never had a drink ever since, you know, that was over 11 years ago. And um, that prayer was answered by something. And um, the obsession for alcohol was completely removed from me there and then. The next day when I was, uh, I was in Thailand actually for a month before I went to Australia. Um, the next day when I was in Thailand, I was surrounded by alcohol absolutely, you know, it was like party central and I had no desire to drink whatsoever. So to go from being completely addicted to alcohol one day and to have that obsession for the alcohol removed the next May was a miracle um, and that was the beginning of my recovery journey
4: more with author Ren Coy straight ahead
8: everybody's doing a brand new dance now
5: hi this is Mark Farner and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program
7: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More
4: with author Ren Coy. Straight ahead. Did your dad ever share with you what his rock bottom was, what his moment of truth was, what what sent him into recovery?
2: Yeah, it was a similar thing, actually. Um, obviously, me—I I overheard my partner saying that she was going to leave me, and my dad got a letter from my mother. Um, so on the wi- the, <laughs> the weekend um, before he we stopped drinking, he locked us out of the house. He, he got drunk, came home, locked us out of the house, left the keys in the door. We couldn't get into the, into the house, so we had to go and stay at my grandmother's house. And um, my mum just wrote him a letter saying that if he didn't stop drinking, that she was going to leave. And um, he had a similar situation where he just woke up, you know, one morning and he just said, enough's enough. And um, he made the phone call to Alcoholics Anonymous. They took him to a meeting and um and when he went to the meeting he he just felt like he'd come home he just knew that it was the right place for him and he he knew that he was no longer alone and i had exactly the same experience when i went to my first meeting as well you know and and my dad and i are both in in recovery together so we go to meetings together regularly now and it's um it's a beautiful thing that is
4: i you know i had a, a kind of a different experience when i quit drinking and i used to um i used to love my drink um but i i had a heart attack and it was a fairly minor attack minor attack but i was hospitalized had a procedure done and then a couple days after i was home i thought oh this is great i'm gonna sit down and have a cocktail and i poured a drink and i started drinking it and it wasn't fun anymore and i i don't know what happened if it was a physiological thing, if it was an emotional thing? Um, but but you reminded me of it when you talked about being in Thailand and being surrounded by alcohol. And you'd made the decision, I'm done with this. And you were done with that. And there was something that happened in me where I was just simply done with it. Yeah. it is, and, and that gets to one of the main focuses of your book all in one uh by by uh, ren koi ren is this idea of consciousness and defining oh. what that is um is is part of recovery have to do with with changing your consciousness and and do we ca- can we control it what is it first
2: well, this is the the conversation that I'm absolutely fascinated with and have been ever since I came into recovery. And the reason why, Tom, is because I actually had a year in Australia before I actually went into Alcoholics Anonymous. So during that year, initially, um, so obviously I'd, you know, I'd said this prayer and all of a sudden I no longer wanted to drink. So I, I felt as though something had happened to me and I didn't understand what that was. So I began to kind of search for an answer to that question and it led me down some extremely strange paths and and they were all of a spiritual nature and um first of all i met a um a born again christian um who I had a conversation with him about it and i said look you know i was an alcoholic i've something's happened to me i don't know what it is and he just kind of said to me well You need to ask for a sign, you know, ask God for a sign and and God will give you a sign. And I was like, okay. So that night I was walking home um, from this conversation and and I said a prayer. And the next day I was contacted by um, an old friend of mine via social media on Facebook. And the weird thing was the day before I'd been searching for her. And I couldn't find her on any any social media. And then all of a sudden the next day I had this message request, this uh, friend request from her. And it was such a huge coincidence. Um, not only because I had been looking for her, but also it turned out that she was in Australia and she lived just down the road from me. So this sign that I asked for was given to me. And then a, a, a series of coincidences um, happened after that. And... It just led me on this, on this journey uh, uh, of trying to understand what was going on. And after a year, I hit, I hit another rock bottom. I hit an emotional rock bottom because I hadn't changed. Now, you're asking this question about consciousness and change. And I hadn't really changed anything other than I'd stopped drinking. Nothing inside me had particularly changed. And um, I hit another uh, an emotional rock bottom, and it was at that point that I decided to um, to try Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, and I've been in in that recovery um, uh, group ever since. And when I entered Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, and I learned about the program and uh, the founders and their experiences, it turned out that Bill's experience, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, was extremely close to my experience, and it turns out that many many recovering alcoholics have had these similar experiences so that got me thinking about what what is it like what is it that um that kind of brings about this change within us like you said is it a physiological thing is it a mental thing is it an emotional thing What, what exactly is it so I started to investigate that and write about it and the, the answer that the conclusion that i've come to for me personally is in the in the um in alcoholics anonymous they talk about having what, what they call a spiritual malady which when you kind of look into that it's it's an inability to manage one's emotions so it's a lack of emotional intelligence as far as i can tell and those emotions when they are unmanageable then become mental health issues and the mental health issues are what we attempt to medicate with substances and behaviors so obviously in my case it was alcohol and drugs but it could be anything it could be gambling it could be sex it could be exercise it could be work some things that we that we choose to manage our emotions are are worse than others um and that the, the consciousness part of it for me is Direct result of that manageability around emotions. So, my mental consciousness, I have peace of mind, for example, when I'm doing all the right things. If I'm praying, if I'm meditating, if I'm, you know, watching my actions, I tend to have peace of mind. If I don't pay attention to those areas of my life, I'm kind of all over the place. And I think that. Every single culture and every and, 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 and just different people we 've all got our ways of managing ourselves so whether it 's a 12 step program or whether it 's Buddhism or whether it 's Christianity, everybody finds something that helps them to manage themselves to manage their emotions to manage their consciousness and um, and that and what I've found personally that works for me is that is the twelve steps
4: How would somebody with a, a scientific orientation um, look at consciousness as opposed to somebody that looks at it from a a spiritualistic uh, perspective?
2: Well, this is the biggest question in science at the moment, isn't it? It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg, is it? does (laughs) (laughs) Does consciousness create the world or does human brain well, it goes back to, to that that quote
4: i think therefore i am
2: yes it does it does and 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 i kind of flip that on its head at the beginning of the book all is one and i said i am therefore i think and you know the 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 answer to that question is once once we know the answer to that question we'll know what reality is to be honest tom so it's very difficult. That's that's what the whole purpose of the book was to try to have this conversation and to play out this conversation as to how can the rational mind of the scientist appreciate that which the mystics of you know of, of the thousand, of last thousands years thousands of years have explained the world to be. How can we come to some sort of agreement on on what the, on what reality is? And quantum physics is now suggesting that the universe is essentially one mass of energy, one mass of energy consciousness, waves that become particles. As the, um, the the matter becomes denser, you get the physical world. Now, we don't see that, do we? We don't see those waves. We just see the particles. We just see, you know, like when I'm sat on this chair, I can just feel the solid chair. But the reality of this chair is it's, it's made out of nothing other than waves. So everything is made out of the same stuff. And for me, this idea of like God or a higher power, well, it kind of answers that question for me because everything is God. God is everything. This is, the, this is where the title of the book comes from, All is One. Everything is God. God is everything. Everything is this energy consciousness. And for us to get our head around that is going to be um, the, 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 biggest cha- the biggest quantum shift in, in our consciousness will happen, I believe, when everybody is on the same page
4: that's um that that was what i was going to ask next ren is if you think that awareness or consciousness is different from individual to individual or are we all thriving for the same uh total consciousness and and, and ultimately will we end up on the same page
2: well, in the Hindu philosophy, they believe, that they say that the Brahman, which is everything, you know, God, and the Atman, which is the individual soul, are the same thing. So they believe that individually we have this spark of the divine within us, and that spark is the Atman, that spark is the soul or the spirit, whatever you want to call it. But then there is the, what you might call the, you know, the, the over spirit, which is, which is everything. So that spirit, Is inside everything which it animates everything it's within the cell of every atom and and we have that individualistically as well so that for me that answers my worldview I that that is the way that I perceive it but unfortunately having a rational human mind it's very very difficult to conceive of these ideas which is why meditation and even psychedelic medicines come into the equation for me because i've had i've had many many experiences of of actually experiencing that oneness myself so one of the greatest experiences that i had was during a psychedelic um journey with uh, ayahuasca which is um an amazonian plant medicine and another two or three of these experiences has been through meditation and the, the the key word here is experience, because when we talk about having spiritual experiences, I can't explain to you, Tom, what my spiritual experiences w- were like, because it's just words, and you couldn't explain to me what your spiritual experiences were like, because I'd, I, I wouldn't be able to fathom what you were really talking about. I have to experience it for myself. And however we have those experiences determines what our kind of belief is and what our understanding of the universe and of consciousness is so for me i think that society that this shift in society needs to begin at a very very young age we need to get children into meditation we need need to learn more about psychedelic medicines and how they can help us um and then we'll see this quantum shift and i believe that one day everybody will get on the same page i believe that that, i'm an optimist and i believe that that is a future for for humanity
4: you know, it's um, in your first book, "Ren um, Addiction Prevention: uh, yeah. Twelve Steps to Spiritual Awakening." You suggest, and you just touched on it parenthetically, that um, that children should be taught certain kinds of spiritual awareness and and um, and and things that would lead to better mental health in their formative years to avoid eventually having the kinds of mental issues that people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol and um, sex and binge-watching Netflix with. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> All of which I still do. <laughs> <laughs> but...
4: but <laughs> but i'm i i, I want to find out more about about this idea that we go to when the problem starts and solve the problem and that puts off these other abuses and and tragedies later
6: mm. how, well, how when would I, when we I do
4: that how would we do that how would we get people on board with the idea that we've we've got a um We've got to work on young
2: people's mental health
4: as they're growing up, as they're evolving.
2: Well, I think that you know the, the, the covid nineteen pandemic has really exacerbated people's mental health in general, hasn't it? and, it, and, it, yeah. and now we really understand now how important. Uh, looking after ourselves is, and the tragedy of, of this pandemic has has been, well, there's been many tragedies, but one of them has been the effect of, on, on children's mental health. Um, and it's really highlighted how much we need to all concentrate on our mental health and our physical health in order to, um, survive in this world. And, you know, when I, when I entered recovery and, and I sat down with a sponsor and went through the 12 steps, Oh, the only thing that was going through in my mind when I was doing it was why was I not taught this stuff when I was a kid? Because if I'd have been taught this, these things when I was a child, it definitely would have helped me to manage and to um, deal with the stuff that was going on for me. I mean, I'd never spoken about my feelings before in my life. I'd never written, and I'd never like had a diary or anything like that, written things down. And I'd never looked at, you know, at myself, um, the things that I needed to change within myself um i'd never been shown how to meditate i hadn't grown up in a religious uh, upbringing so i'd never been shown how to pray or any of those things there was just so many amazing tools that i learned as a result of going through the 12 steps that i was convinced that this is something that you know that we should be taught at an early age and and when i when i comprised that book and I was talking to people about it and I was kind of, you know, like having these conversations saying, you know, do you not not think that this would work if we went, you know, at school? And some people couldn't see how, because people concentrate mainly on the addiction itself. So if, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who's an alcoholic, who doesn't understand addiction and doesn't understand what the actual underlying problem is, they think that the problem is the alcohol The problem is not the alcohol. Alcohol is the medication. The alcohol is the solution to the problem. The problem, as as I've said, is this underlying issue, this emotional, this um, inability to manage our emotions an inability to uh, be able to express ourselves and to allow... So if I'm angry, for example, I don't have to go and smash the house up. I can actually have a conversation and I can express my anger in a way that, Gets it out, allows that energy to pass through me and doesn't turn into a a rage that hurts other people. But when I was a young man, I didn't know that. So every time I got angry, I would cause havoc. So that's just one kind of example. And and that for me would, I mean, I, I now live with, I've got two stepchildren, a 13 year old and an 11 year old both of which have struggled during the pandemic. And I've now got a two-year-old daughter as well. And I can just see how easily it would be for her mental health to deteriorate very, very rapidly if she doesn't have the kind of parenting that hopefully myself and my partner are going to give her.
4: Wren, you've written two books now. The first, uh, I I just uh, mentioned Addiction Prevention, and now All is One. Um. Do you have the bug for writing? Is there there a new book in the works?
2: Funnily enough, Tom, I've actually actually written, I wrote four books before um, All Is One. So my first book was Addiction Prevention, yeah. Um, Then I wrote a book called Anonymous God. Then there was a book uh, called Together, and then uh, The Spiritual Malady, and then All Is One. And and the reason why, I, I wrote All Is One because my daughter was born and then the pandemic hit and I had all this free time on my hands and I was you know, I was absolutely blown away by becoming a father and I wanted to kind of write about that and I also had all these questions that had come up through writing the previous books around um spirituality and science and consciousness. So I put my heart and soul into this book and and I was determined to get it published as well because my previous four books I'd self published all those and I was at the time I was working with a life coach called Dennis Berry, and um, he tasked me to um, challenge me, should I say, to uh, to get this book published. So I did. Um, I contacted um, about thirty or forty publishers, and and um, and it was kind of snapped up quite quickly, which was which was a major shock. And I was really really proud of myself and really pleased with the fact that it you know that it was getting published. But the truth of the matter is, Tom, that over those it took about. I think it was about 18 months in total from when I finished the book to, to it actually being um, published and, and available in, in the stores. So during that 18 months, and, and that was, you know, concurrent with the pandemic, I actually struggled quite a lot with my mental health as well. And um, I, at the time of writing, I was, I was recording podcasts. I was, um, I had a podcast called Life in Recovery and, um, I was I was promoting that, and I was all over social media, and I had quite a big following on Facebook and on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And I actually, it sound it'll sound crazy, but it's the truth. Is I actually deleted all of my social media and all of the podcasts because I just reached a point where I needed to take a breath. I needed like space, and I needed to practice the principles that I've been writing about and really take time for myself and to concentrate on my own mental health. And and as a result of that, I'm, I'm feeling well again now. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm considering the idea of writing another book, but I don't think it will be, it, it might, my, my daughter's obviously very young now. She's two years old and I spend a lot of time with her and um, I don't really have the time to write another book at the moment. So maybe when she's a little bit older, I'll, I'll write another one.
4: Um. Ren, we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website that you could share?
2: Yeah, if you go to uh, www.o-books.com. Um, everything about me is on is on that website yeah and you can uh, buy the books uh, all is one the science and spirituality of consciousness and my other books on Amazon Kindle and Barnes and Noble as well
4: well Ren it's been a real pleasure and I, I just I want to say thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts uh, with me and the listeners and in your books um, and um, you know maybe maybe if you uh, if you do another book down the road, we'll we'll get together and, and talk again. Um, in the meantime, Wren, I'll just leave it at thanks and keep up the good work.
2: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and thanks for your time. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
4: That was uh, Ren Coy, a British author, and as he mentioned, uh, host of the uh, Life and Recovery podcast. He has a uh, new book called All is One that offers a conclusive definition of consciousness that might satisfy both the scientifically oriented and spiritually oriented reader. And with that, we'll uh, take a break and we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Straight up. Mm -hmm.
8: Do the right thing and stay inside with me. You might just save a life, or two, or three, or four, or maybe five. Let's
1: save lies Are we crazy, baby?
8: This ice isolated-
1: I'm in Flint fighting crime. I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay
5: dangerous.
1: Darkwing Duck
7: out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint. Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
8: Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
5: Cloth
7: or disposable, paint or wallpaper, yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet, rocker or glider. So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor, go to cdc.gov vaccines, or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. You're not
5: here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg.
7: Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual, but when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time, but when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away! We're at a gas station! What? (laughs)
2: This is U.S.
5: Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, I worked as an accountant for a number of years in Chicago, uh, and I had a kind of a strange uh, theory of accountancy. Uh, I had always felt, uh, you know, if you got within two or three bucks of it... (laughs) But this never really caught on. <laughs> and as a consequence, I held a number of different accounting jobs, you see. And it seemed like whenever I would go with a company, uh, they would always be having a retirement party. And I found out one thing. They are all alike. Uh, different people will retire. Different people make the speeches. But they all say the same tired old things. I went to one in Chicago for a guy named Chuck Bedlow. He was an accountant and he was retiring after 50 years. And first of all, Mr. Clayton got up. He was the president, he gave a little address. Then Mr. Tipton, the vice president, gave a little address. And finally, Bruce Higgins, the head of the accounting department, got up and gave a little address. And he was Mr. Trite. He used every cliche that had ever been used at a retirement party. Uh, And he said things like this. Well, uh, uh, golly, I guess today's the day, isn't it? <laughs> 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 it's, uh, it's really gonna seem funny though, uh, golly walking in here Monday morning and, and not seeing, uh, not seeing uh, uh, Charlie's uh, smiling happy face there at the desk I uh I got to calling him smiling easygoing Charlie. <laughs> and I guess most of us had some sort of nickname or other we used to call him from time to time. <laughs> I I'll, I'll never forget a... Well, that, that too, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget a kind of amusing thing happened. Uh I just got out of college and uh now what's what's the phrase I'm looking for here? I, I well, a, a little wet behind the ears, I guess
3: might be the way to put it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was made department head here. <laughs> and uh, many's a night that Charlie and I used to uh, sort of uh, burn the midnight oil, so to speak. So let's really hear it now for a uh, wonderful old guy. Uh, uh Charlie uh Bredlow. Bredlow, Bedlow. Charlie
3: <laughs> Well, I uh, uh, thank, uh, thank you very much, Bruce. Golly, I've been uh sitting here uh, listening to uh, Mr. Clayton and um mister Mr. Tibbeton. and of course Bruce here and through all of their speeches one thought kept sort of a recurring in my mind. I uh I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I have never heard such Dribbling all my life. I, I don't suppose that it, it ever occurred to any of you that I had to get half stoned every morning to make it down to this crummy job. You'd, uh, you'd, you'd be s- smiling and. Easy going if you were gassed all the time, too. <laughs> but you put in your 50 years and they give you this crummy watch. They, I try to, try to make a big deal out of it, it works out to about 28 cents a year. But uh, ser- seriously, if it hadn't been for the 50 bucks a week that I glummed out of petty cash. <laughs> well, I, I just uh, I couldn't have made it on
6: the,
3: on the lousy salary they paid. Oh, and then uh, someone started the rumor about Miss um, Wilson, the uh, the cashier, and myself. <laughs> and everyone was running. If uh, you know, when I retire, and uh, she gets back from her vacation in Florida, whether well, uh, we were to get married, I suppose, and spend our declining years down there. Uh, she, she isn't coming back, by the way. I understand that sweet old Miss Wilson is uh, into this company for about a hundred thousand bucks. <laughs> it's, it's a little deal that she's worked out. She either calls it uh, double payrolling or ghost payrolling or some, something having to do with payrolling. <laughs> I can never make heads or tails out of what she was talking about. Of course, she's uh, down in Mexico, with a hundred thou, <laughs> and I'm up here with this crummy watch. <laughs> so, anything that I might say I suppose it would be sour
6: grapes.
3: (laughs) One last thing. A lot of uh, people have asked me, Charlie, what are you going to do when you finally retire? Are you going to get a little uh, part-time job in Florida or uh, just a lull around the beach? Or in other words, what am I going to do? I have some tapes from some office parties <laughs> that I'm, I'm going to let go for 1,500 bucks a copy. <laughs> now let me, let me take that back a minute. Uh, the June picnic may run 17.5. <laughs> And with the money that I make off of the tapes, and Ms. Wilson's under a thow, I should uh, do pretty good. Thank you very much. Thank you.
6: This was
0: another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
1: I will find you and I promise this. I'll see you on the other side. will see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. And I'll meet you with arms open wide. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side see
6: the without i'm talking see you on the other side overstation radio for a new generation the timesoner
8: program dot com
6: Time Summer Program. The Time Summer Program. From the Tom Summer.